Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Bible, go with me to the book of Matthew, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew chapter 2 is where I want us to turn and look together in our attention today, and uh, I believe God certainly wants to speak to us. I want to welcome those that are streaming live. Thank you so much. I pray the Spirit of the Lord would minister to you right where you're at today. Matthew chapter 2, I want to share a Christmas message with you today that I am calling Making the King My Home. Making the King My Home. And we know, of course, that Jesus is the King of Kings, and we know He's the Lord of Lords. But what I want to show you today is I want to show you some of the kings that came to worship Him, and I want to show you a king that didn't want to worship Him, and then we're going to talk about the one true king that was born at Christmas, making the king my home. Point number one, here's the first group today. The first group we're going to look at is what I'm calling the joyous kings. The joyous kings. The joyous kings, we're talking, when we mention them, we're talking about the magi. We're talking about the wise men. We've heard them called the wise men for much of our lives. Maybe you've heard them called the magi. I'm calling them today the joyous Kings. Matthew chapter 2, begin reading with me in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. That was a lie. That was actually not a lie, right? Maybe. We'll see. Well, understand. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. We're going to look at why he was troubled in just a moment. Jump down to verse 9. We're going to skip the middle stuff. We're going to come back to the middle stuff. Verse 9, when they heard the king, they departed. This is speaking of they being the, the magi. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. I want you to see that word, went before them. Till it came and stood. I want you to notice that word. The star stood over where the young child was. I want you to focus. Young child. Did not say babe. Said young child. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, the house, not the manger, the house. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child, young child, not babe, with his mother. And they fell down. And worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him. Gold, which is a symbol that represents royalty. Frankincense, which represents divinity. And myrrh, which represents humanity. We have all of the theological understanding of Jesus and his reality with three gifts. Then being divinely, that is the Magi, warned in a dream... That they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now, church, let me catch us up to speed just for a moment on all of this. You all have seen the nativity scene, right? 
okay? And many of you have seen the nativity story, great movie. I'm, I'm all for the nativity scene, I like it. You might have one, okay? I know for us, we had one growing up. But let me just go ahead and tell you something. I don't want to burst your bubble. Um, the wise men were not there, okay? Now, you can keep them in your, your nativity scene for your Christmas pageantry, okay? It looks cool, it looks nice, but the wise men were not at the nativity scene, They were not at the manger scene. Why? Just so you know, they were from Persia. This was a thousand mile journey that was between six and nine months. Okay? They traveled a thousand treacherous miles, these magi did, to come find the babe Jesus. It was about a six to nine month journey, and it says very clearly when they came into the house, not when they came into the manger. And when they came into the house, they saw the young child. They didn't see the babe. They saw the child. Okay? It says, by the way, just side point here, it says young child nine times in seven verses. I think Matthew wants you to understand. This was a young child in nine times in seven verses. So Jesus is under two years old. He's what we call a toddler. Now, we know he's got to be under two because we're about to see something from Herod in just a moment. Okay? So we know he's under two years old, but he's not a baby. But they came in to worship Jesus, and these men, these magicians, these magi, were wise men. Now, the question, the question that begs to be asked is, how did they know to come worship him? That's a great question to ask. Well, they didn't have the Jewish scriptures, but what they had was a prophecy. Everybody say prophecy. Let me catch us up to speed. There was a king of Moab when, when Israel was in the wilderness wandering. His name was Balak. Anybody remember Balak? He was the king of Moab. And the king of Moab wanted to curse Israel. So you know what he did? He hired one of, his own, one of their own prophets. His name was Balaam. Remember Balaam and the donkey? And he hired Balaam to come and prophesy four times over Israel to curse them. And every time Balaam got up to prophesy, guess what he did? He blessed them. And every single time Balak paid him a little more and then went back to his prayer closet and was praying that when he changed his prophecy, the next time it would be a curse. And every single time, Balaam prophesied blessing all four times. And the fourth time he prophesied blessing, he gives us something of the land of Moab that now tells these magi there is a king that's going to be born in a certain place. Notice what the text says in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. This is Balaam's fourth prophecy. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star, capital, shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel, Balaam said, and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. So what's he saying? God speaks to him so he can't curse. He wants to do what Balak, the king of Moab, has told him, but he can't because God speaks to him. And so he gives these blessings and he says, the Messiah will come out of Judah with a star. Now I want you to see this. A star will herald this birth. Now, what most of us don't know, uh, maybe if we've not done Bible study on this, is that Balaam was what we call the father of the Magi. Balaam's the father of the Magi. These Magi are in Daniel. If you read the book of Daniel, they're in the book of Daniel while uh, Israel was in uh, Persia, right? Babylon, Babylon was Babylonian captivity, which gave way to Persian captivity because Persia overtook, King Cyrus overtook King Nebuchadnezzar. So, so in the book of Daniel, all throughout Persia, we see these Magi, okay? They were in Persia, lots of magicians. These are called cognate words. It's where we get our word magician from, magi, okay? But you got to understand something. You got to understand something. The magi were created by Balaam. Balaam is the father of the magi. So how did they know? 
How did these joyous kings know to come worship the babe? Easy. They had Balaam's prophecy. They knew Balaam's prophecy. Balaam's prophecy had spread in what we call the ancient Near Eastern world. They had Balaam talking about these people whose God was the true God and, and, and that a Messiah would come who would ultimately rule the whole world and a star would ultimately herald his birth. Now, I think personally that there is evidence historically that, that the planets lined up at that time, right? So when we talk about this star, that, that that could have been what was taking place. I encourage all of you tomorrow night, please, 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 December 21 at winter solstice, Go out right before dark, so that way you can see the sun setting, okay? Watch the sunset, and then wait about 30 minutes. Look as clear as you can to the southwest, and you're going to see something called the Great, Great Conjunction. It's not happened since 1223. Saturn and Jupiter will be closer together than they've ever been since we've discovered them. 1615 is when we discovered them. They're going to be closer. They're going to be one-tenth of a degree apart tomorrow night. They're going to be so close, if you have binoculars, you're going to be able to see all four moons of Jupiter. Okay? Jupiter's going to be the one that's brightest right on the horizon. If you look up to the tenth, a tenth degree to the left, you're going to see Saturn. This is called the Great Conjunction. won't happen again for another 2,000 years. They're literally going to get that close. Right here in 2020, we got a nativity star. We got a Bethlehem star. The star of wonder, oh, star of night, is actually not a star. It's two planets, okay, coming together. It's going to take place. You can see it the next night as well, but you want to get an open, open area. And if you're a nerd like me and you love science, good luck sleeping tonight, all right? So they had Balaam's prophecy. They knew this. They, they understood this. I think there is evidence that the planets lined up. This also, though, this star could be what we call a heavenly host at his birth. Because remember, you're not just talking about one angel. You're talking about a host of angels. Angels are referred to, by the way, as stars in the book of Revelation. We know in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the bride and morning star. So we really don't know what it is that was actually leading the Magi from the east. But, but there is significance in this. And, and, and here's what I want you to see. Because after meeting with Herod, they go to Jerusalem to meet with Herod. The Bible says they came out and the star went before them. Now you need to think about this. Because stars don't went. Stars don't went. They don't went. You don't follow stars. Okay? But it said they followed the star until it came and stood over the house where the child was. Now, stars don't stand over houses either. So it could have been at this point, my personal opinion, an angel. I would say it was a host of angels at this point, which is why we see him called stars in the book of Revelation. So that's what's happened at this point. I don't know how it started. It could have started with a great conjunction. I don't know, when they were over in Persia. But it stood over the house where they were. Now here's what they do. These magi, or what I'm calling the Jewish kings, go to Jerusalem. Why do they go to Jerusalem? Because it's the capital city. They think if there's going to be a king of Jerusalem or king of Israel, he's going to be born in the capital city. They get there and they tell them, oh, no, no, no. 
no, 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 he's not here. So what do they do? They get out the scrolls. They open to Micah chapter five, verse two. And, and the people in Jerusalem have enough wisdom to tell them this is what happens. But you, Bethlehem, uh, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So these people in Jerusalem tell the Magi, oh, no, no, no. I know you're looking for the king born here, but he's actually not born here. He's gonna be born in Bethlehem. So they go to Bethlehem. But here's what I want you to know, church, and I want you to see it very clearly about these wise men. I want you to see the joy that they had. The joy. The absolute overwhelming joy. It didn't say they rejoiced when they saw the child. It didn't say they had great joy when they saw the child. It didn't say that they even rejoiced with great joy. It said they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. These wise, sophisticated intelligentsia of the day rejoiced with great joy at the sight of the Christ child. Now, personally, I rejoice with exceedingly great joy when Tennessee actually throws a touchdown pass and not a pick six. My wife, she rejoices with exceedingly great joy when TJ Maxx has a 50% off sale. But my wife and I, we both rejoice with exceedingly great joy when we come to church, especially at Christmas time. They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy joy. Listen, y'all, it's okay to rejoice over other things, but what is amazing to me, and I want you to hear me, what is amazing to me is how we can rejoice over other things and not rejoice with exceedingly great joy over Jesus. To not rejoice with exceedingly great joy over the Son of God. And listen, before we think this, these were not unintelligent men. These are not social outcasts. These were not socially unacceptable men. These were the sophisticated, smart, intelligent, intelligentsia is what I call them. Wealthy people of their day. And notice what they did. These men fell down. Everybody say, fell down. Now, when the Bible says they fell down and worshiped him, that's two words in English. That's one word in Greek. You know what it means? It means to throw down violently. It means to shatter. It means to be broken into pieces. It's like me up here holding a a fragile vase and throwing it down. That's what fell down means. In other words, they were not ashamed to express their worship to a toddler. To a toddler. To a toddler. So they worshiped exuberantly, watch this, and they gave extravagantly. I thought about halfway through this week changing my message to just what I call the two keys of joy. I have read this story a hundred, hundreds of times, and I have never in my life seen it like I did this week. The two keys to joy in your life is you're going to have to worship exuberantly and give extravagantly every day of your life. That's the two keys to joy. Worship exuberantly, give extravagantly. Worship exuberantly, give extravagantly. Worship exuberantly, give extravagantly. And many people don't realize that these wise men gave more than, than you think. They really gave, they gave more than actually they were intended to give. Can I explain it to you? 
They said when they got there, they opened their treasury. Now, you have to understand something. When you traveled in the ancient Near Eastern world, you had what you called a treasury. And that treasury held all of the resources so that you would be able to successfully complete your trip. So they had in this treasury all the money to get where they were going, a thousand miles, to have money and resource to do and take care of things when they were there, and then to get back home, right? And they had someone over the treasury, And it was their traveling expenses to ensure they would make it back home. So they had planned, watch this, they had planned to give some gifts. But when they got in there and they realized they were in the presence of the Savior of the world. When they realized they were in the presence of Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah, the King of the Jews. The Magi looked at the treasury guy and he said, hey, open the whole treasury. But but you don't understand, Magi. We got to get back home. I don't care. Shut up. Open the whole thing. Get out everything we've got. And I want you to lay it at his feet. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing, church, I want you to notice about this. Before they worshiped exuberantly and gave extravagantly, Before they did those two things, remember, they had to go to other people in Jerusalem to find out what the Bible said. Do you remember this? They go to Jerusalem looking for the child. He's not there. They explain to him out of the book of Micah. They got to go go to Bethlehem. Remember, when they came, they said, where is he? King of the Jews. They had to get the Bible out and explain to them. Now watch this. Before they worshiped exuberantly and before they gave extravagantly, They had to go to other people to find out what the Bible said. But after they worshiped exuberantly and gave extravagantly, God spoke directly to them. Then being divinely warned in a dream. Holy moly, that came off the page to me this week. You want to be a person that God speaks to? Be an exuberant worshiper and an extravagant giver. You want God to speak to you every day? You want dreams and visions to be operative in your life? Worship exuberantly, give extravagantly. Wake up the next morning, worship exuberantly, and give extravagantly. They had to have somebody tell them the Bible before they did those two things. But after they did those two things, God spoke directly to them. You want to have joy in your life in this Advent season? You want to be a joyous person? Be an exuberant worshiper and be a, an extravagant giver. Listen, sometimes, we, sometimes in America, we 21st century Westerners, we are just so sophisticated, aren't we? These wise men were sophisticated, but they worshiped. They worshiped Jesus. I just wish we would let ourselves go more. I didn't think I'd get many amens. That's okay. I really do. I wish we go into 2021 and no matter our faith tradition or where we come from, we would let ourselves go more. We let ourselves go over a touchdown and there's nothing wrong with that. But why not in church? Let yourself go sometimes. I'm praying that we a spirit-filled expression in the city of Woodstock, Georgia. When we go into 2021, this church would start letting itself go. Let yourself go. You want to dance? Dance. Okay? Let's don't stand staunch face with our hands in our pockets and acting like Jesus hasn't really done what he said he's done. Let yourself go. These sophisticated men fell down on their knees. The wonder of Christmas has exploded in my imagination this week. Worshiping a toddler. A toddler. In fact, 
Bible says let's encourage one another, right? You know the one another's in Scripture? Pray one another, greet one another. We don't practice the greet one another with a holy kiss anymore. I greet my wife with a holy kiss. And a couple of these young, good-looking men around me, I greet with a holy kiss sometimes. But encourage one another, strengthen one another, right? So let's do something. The Bible says to encourage one another. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, for God's sake, let yourself go in 2021. Come on, just tell them. Say, for God's sake, let yourself go in 2021. Let yourself go. Now, look. Look, I really do mean for God's sake. I'm not meaning that as a cute little phrase. I mean, for God's sake, for the sake of God, let yourself go in 2021. So those are the joyous kings. Now listen to me, church. Listen to me. When you recognize God as creator, you will begin to admire him. When you recognize his wisdom, you will learn from him. When you recognize his strength, you will rely on him. But only when he saves you will you worship him. When he saves you, when he delivers you, when he sets you free from the dominion of darkness and death and sin and places you in his marvelous light, will you really feel free to worship him? So we have the joyous king. Secondly, we have the jealous king. The jealous king. Now, this is the spirit church that fights against joy. This is the antithesis of joy. If you are jealous, let me say it another way. Are you ready? If you are selfish, you will never have joy. If you're selfish, you'll never have true joy. So here's the jealous king, King Herod, Matthew chapter 2. Look at verse 7 and 8. Notice what the text says. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. That is a lie. That is indefinitely a lie. Jump down real quick, verse 16. And notice what the text says, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Now, this is a horrible atrocity. Leave it up for a moment. Horrible atrocity, but just so you know, just so you know, I'm not trying to undermine it, but just so you know, it was about 24 babies. Still bad, but you've seen the movies and you see hundreds of babies being slayed. Wrong. So according to history and according to Bethlehem and the census and that which were registered, it was about 22 to 24 babies that were killed in Bethlehem. Still, two dozen kids murdered innocently, but it was less than 24. It was less than 24. So here is Herod, now totally in panic mode. And by the way, can I just tell us real quick? God has a very good sense of humor. By the way, the day that Herod did this, you know what Herod got? He contracted a disease and he died five days later. Five days later. He killed the children at at Christmas and five days later he was dead. And I want you to see real quick that Herod is not fictitious. So don't think, I think sometimes we read these stories so much, we think that Herod's like the Scrooge or the Grinch. We, got it, we, have to, we have to stop being so piously distant from the text. Okay, this is, a, this is not a fictitious character, okay? This is Herod. Now, there is a lot of confusion right here, okay? Everybody says six. There are six Herods in the Bible. Let me name them for you right quick. You have Herod the Great, you have Herod Antipas, you have Herod Philip, 
You have Herod Agrippa I. You have Herod Agrippa II. You have Herod Archelaus. Some people say to me when I say that, they say, what about Herod the Tetrarch? Herod the Tetrarch is Herod Antipas. Tetrarch just means one-fourth. means means Herod, ruler of one-fourth of the land. Herod the Tetrarch was Herod Antipas. Who was the Herod that was king at the time Jesus was born? His name was Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Now, when Herod the Great died, and, and remember what I just told us, five days before he died, he had just put to death all of the babies. He also killed his son that day. Herod the Great killed his son. You say, Craig, why? Because everyone knew that he would be one of the greatest leaders that they had ever known. He had a really wonderful, great gift of leadership. He was only a teenager at the time, and he killed him as well five days before he died. Why? He had him executed because he was known as Herod the Great, and they already started talking in the streets of Jerusalem. They were going to call him Herod the Greater. He couldn't handle that, so he slaughtered his son. So his kingdom is now divided. Archelaus, quick history lesson, was the rightful heir, okay? He got half of it. Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, got one-fourth of it. That's what Tetrarch means. And then Herod Philip got the other fourth. So there are six Herods in the Bible. By the way, just quick trivia here. Uh, Paul, he stood before Herod Agrippa II, Herod Agrippa II. And the reason, by the way, Herod the Great is called Herod the Great, you know why? Any guesses? He called himself that. Okay? He called himself that. It's like MC Hammer. His only hit of all time is like he's too legit to quit. He's like the best of his deal. You know, like that's his only hit, right? This is Herod. He called himself Herod the Great. He named himself that. But let me tell you something. He did build some things that were remarkable. There are three things. Everybody say three. Three things that you can see to this day. To this day, if you go to Israel, that Herod the Great built. The first one is he built Caesarea. Caesarea is a port city. It's about 80 miles north of Tel Aviv. Okay, I've been there. Many of you have been there. It's amazing. And you know why he named it Caesar or Caesarea? He named it after Caesar because he was trying to manipulate those over him to get favor. Okay, this is Caesarea. A couple pictures. Caesarea. Uh, This is me standing uh, where Paul stood to appeal to Caesar and Felix before he made his great trek to Rome. Next slide real quick. Notice this. This is me standing at the, at the port where Herod's entire huge estate was built. You can still see the rocks to this day. Next one. This is the amphitheater where Paul stood. I'm standing where Paul stood with the boldness of a 5'4", 125-pound man, and he stands up before Felix and Agrippa, and he makes an appeal to Caesar to go to Rome, and he declares unashamedly the gospel. <laughs> I stood there probably about 45 minutes and just screamed, like as if I was Paul, you know, trying to see if I could hear the echoes, because this is still the amphitheater where Paul would have been brought out in chains and stood. This is Caesarea, still to this day there. Second thing Herod built that still to this day is called Masada. Now, Masada is a lifted up desert spa. Many of you have been to Israel, amazing, overlooking the Dead Sea. This is Masada, real quick. Show you Masada. Look how beautiful this is. Now, it looks like a desert, but literally he built an entire desert spa with tiles, subway tiles. You can still see them, the color in the tiles, where he had huge spa rooms. Okay? And he overlooked. This is where the people tried to see that ramp. They built that ramp in about 
uh, 40 AD to come in and they had to build it day by day and try to move and dodge the arrows till they finally got the ramp up to the top of Masada to overtake and kill the people. That's still there to this day. The third thing, most people don't know this, the third thing Herod the Great built. You know what it is? The Western Wall. The Wailing Wall. Now, most of us, our lives, we've heard of the Wailing Wall, where the wall with Jews pray is on the other side was the Holy of Holies. True, but the Jews could not, what? Go on the Temple Mount. It's now Muslim-dominated. They definitely can't go. So you know what he did? Herod tried to get favor with the Jews, so he extended the Temple Mount. You know what the Wailing Wall is? It's a retaining wall. And so since the Jews couldn't get on the Temple Mount, they started praying against the, what we call the Western Wall. Watch this. Herod, so paranoid about losing control, named Caesarea after Caesar because he's trying to manipulate those over him. He's so panicked because of those under him, he extends the Temple Mount and gives the Jews another wall to pray to to try to manipulate and get favor with them. This is what we call the Herodian paranoid spirit. Herod. This, this is King Herod the Great. And you can still see that to this day. But here's what you need to know. Herod, built, he, she, he married a, a woman named Miriam, which, by the way, was the same um, name as the mother of Jesus. Right? Jesus' mom's name was Miriam. That's the Hebrew name. We call it Mary in English. It's, our name is Miriam. Obviously, a different Miriam, a different Mary. But he killed or exiled every one of his wives. He exiled him when he was younger. He killed him when he was older. And even Miriam, his favorite wife, he killed her. And it's strange. Listen, listen, church. It's strange how history records it because it says he killed his favorite wife, although he regretted it later. I thought, oh, man, isn't that so sweet? This is so sweet, Herod. Killed your favorite wife, slit her throat, but you regretted it. What's going on? He's crazy. Why? Because he won't give up power. He won't give up control. I know a lot of believers that know Jesus but still have a Herodian spirit. They will not give up control. They will not give up power. They will not fall down on their knees. They will not be shattered to the ground in worship. Because he was trying to control everyone and everything around him. And I'm going to tell you, when you live like that, that will drive you crazy. He killed many servants. If you read history, it's amazing. One time in specific, his servants in his house were whispering about dinner because they didn't want to disturb him. You know, he was scrolling on Facebook or Instagram or something, and they thought, well, let's don't disturb him. So they start whispering, and you know what he does? He kills them, slaughters them in his house because he thinks that they are talking about him. Please hear me. Herod was on a search and destroy mission because he wanted to kill the king of the Jews. In fact, most people don't know this. He went to the Roman Senate in 40 BC, and you know what he did? He petitioned, got all of Israel behind him, and he got the title legally, king of the Jews. You want to find ironic about the Bethlehem story? There's one place called Herodium that is up on the top of the land. And you can see the place where Herod would have been the night that Mary and Joseph, probably down below him as two peasants, walked on a donkey and got into Bethlehem. And here he is claiming to be the king of the Jews. And yet the savior of the world is being born right in front of him. And he has no capacity to kill the child. That's why when Jesus got on above his plaque, king of the Jews, do you now know why the Jews are so mad? 
Because in 40 BC, Herod the Great petitioned to the Senate to get the title King of the Jews. That's why he expanded the Temple Mount, because he wanted to manipulate and get favor with those underneath him. That's why he built Caesarea to manipulate and get favor with those over him. So we have the joyous kings. We have the jealous king. But I want you to hear me. Please hear me. What will attack joy more than anything in your life is you staying in control. You will never have joy until you give up control. Give up power. And that's what Herod represents for us. And church, that's also what the wise men represent because they fell down in worship. They gave up control. Listen to me, church. You can have control or you can have joy, but you can't have both. You can't have both. And God himself is the source of true joy. God himself. You say, Craig, what is the joy of the Lord? It's an inner contentment. It's an inner sense of satisfaction. And I want to hear, I'm here to tell us this Advent, only God can give a true joy. Only God can give a true sense of joy. Listen, church, our society has tried to trick us into thinking that being entertained and having joy are the same things. They're not the same things. Listen, the reason James said you can count it all joy when you face trials at many times is because we as believers know that we know that we know God has a definite purpose in my life. And when I know that God's got a definite purpose for my life, I can face anything I face from his sovereign hand with joy. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is a fleeting emotion. Joy is an eternal condition established by the cross. And only joy comes from Jesus. And Jesus alone can give true joy. Only Jesus. But you won't experience the joy you could experience if you try to maintain control. You maintain control. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody know the Herodian spirit? I'm not talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about believers who try to control anyone and everything around them. You will never have joy that way. At some point, you have to give up. You have to give up. So we have the joyous kings, we have the jealous king, and then most importantly, we have the just king, the one who is truly justified to be the king, the just king. Now, what I'm gonna do in this last point is I'm gonna read you the Christmas story, not from Matthew, but from Luke. Quick point in history here. Some of you might not know. When radio was invented, thank God for radio. When radio was invented, it was, more, uh, it was just Morse code, not M-O-R-R-I-S, but M-O-R-S-E. Right? And amazingly enough, all you could ever transmit in the first 20 years of radio was Morse code. And then finally, inventor after inventor picked it up. And so then one inventor invented what we call the vacuum tube. And then one invented the spark generator or the spark transmitter. And they finally got to a place in, in U.S. history where they finally could do voice. And did you know, I don't know if you knew this or not, the very first words that were ever spoken over the airways of God's universe. I don't know if you've ever known this. Meaning the first thing that came through the air of God's airwaves of God's entire universe was on Christmas Eve, 1906, 
and it was Luke chapter 2. Who's the prince of the air? Satan. And what was the first airwave link recorded? The one who came to stomp his head. (laughs) You want to talk about a prophetic moment. This guy's name is Reginald Fessender. Fessender was an amazing dude. He he got the radio and he got on the port of Massachusetts Christmas Eve 1906 and all the sailors were out at their ships. And all they had ever heard was beep, 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 beep. And on 1906, they looked at that box in their ship and words came through the box, the sailors. He just sent it out to the bay there. And, and they're probably thinking, where are these words coming from, right? Like, who is speaking over us? And Reginald got his fiddle, and he played O Holy Night, and then he began to read Luke chapter 2. This is what this man reads over them. Luke chapter 2. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice this. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel of a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. Now I want to show you. Whoever's playing the keys, you can come. I want to show you the contrast of the Herodian spirit here. I want you to see this. The Herodian spirit won't ever let you give up. The Herodian spirit will always make you be in control. The Herodian spirit will always, you will always have to manipulate people. You will always have to, to, to manipulate people to, to what you desire. It's all about being frantic and controlling everything and everyone around you. That's what the Herodian spirit is. And here's the opposite of that. Here's the opposite. The creator and the sustainer of the universe, church. The omnipotent all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient God of all, the King of kings and the Lord of lords comes to earth as a helpless, vulnerable baby. He is completely dependent on his creation for life. God subjects himself to his own creation to keep him alive. Are you kidding me? Think of the incarnation. He had to be nourished with a bottle to live. Giving up control? (laughs) Becoming vulnerable? God had to be carried to get through the hall of his house. God, go! 
to be carried by a human to make his way into another room. He gives up all control. Philippians 2 says it this way. He laid it all aside. We call it kenosis. He emptied himself of all of that. And he comes as a baby, y'all. He comes as a baby. Think about that. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths. A babe. Listen to me, church. Look at me. If you want joy, you will have to stop fighting. You will have to stop trying to control anyone and everything around you. You will have to stop manipulating because joy only comes when you give up. That's the only place it comes. Jesus said, if you try to save your life, you lose it. But if you lose it, for my sake, Jesus comes as an affront and in direct contrast to the manipulative, controlling spirit that we find in America and in the Western world. He is literally its antithesis. He gives up control. And he says, well, you'll find life is you got to lose it. Now, friends, listen. If I were to ask you the simple question, Who is the reason for the season? Who's the reason for the season? You know, just at point blank, kind of a glance, next slide, when you fill in that blank, who is the reason for the season? And most of the time, if someone asks that as a believer, we're going to say Jesus is the reason for the season. People respond, Jesus. Can I tell you today? Jesus is not the reason for the season. For 700 years before Jesus came to the earth, God made a promise. He said in Isaiah 9, 6, for to us, to us, to us, Christmas came. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government, the cosmos, the order of the things will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderfield Counselor. It will be mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Hear me. Jesus would have still been Jesus whether or not he ever came to the earth. He was the eternal son of God. Jesus is not the reason for the season. You are the reason for the season. I am the reason for the season. That God in his wisdom and infinite mercy and compassion and grace chose not to play armchair quarterback and say we're saved from heaven. He came to earth as a helpless babe. Light stepped into darkness. It didn't say for to God a son is given. To us a son is given. Not to God a child is born to us a child is born who's the reason for the season you're the reason for the season I'm the reason for the season that's what Christmas is about that when we couldn't get to God God came to us he came to us he was born for us for us see friends Nine, Isaiah 9, 6 goes on. It says he's a mighty God. Everybody say mighty God. 
I love this. This gift given to us is a mighty God. In Hebrew, mighty God is El Gabor. Say that with me. Say El Gabor. Say it with a little Hispanic phrase. It sounds like El Chapo, but it's not. El Gabor. Come on, just El Gabor. That's Hebrew for El Gabor. Mighty God. This week, I saw an image come across my computer. And when I saw it, I almost had to step back. And I let the shock of it pass for a moment. And then it began to settle in. And this image brought literally tears to my eyes. Because the Bible says that babe is the mighty God. And I saw this image. This is the image I saw. started to make me think if you live long enough your life will begin and will end with someone wiping your tail and then I thought what that means is that from vulnerability to vulnerability we live that is to say hear me as a human weakness will be our companion till the day we die And I stepped back from my computer and I thought, what do you think of when you hear the words mighty God? What do you hear? What do you see? Mighty is another word for strength. And there's so many stories of the strength of God in the Bible, right? When we hear the mighty God, we think it's like a superhero motif for God, right? I would say the majority of people in our culture today, when they hear the word mighty God... The most people imagine a kind of Superman version of God. One who can conquer his enemies, cast out evil spirits. But pause, pause. If Jesus is the vision of the invisible God, if Jesus is the exact manifestation of who God is, what does his incarnation tell us about a mighty God? What does him becoming a baby tell us about a mighty God? Is his mightiness in his physicality? Is his mightiness in his emotion, emotional reality? Is it his spiritual reality? If his mightiness was in his physicality, he would have appeared in a golden onesie and look like a CrossFit trainer, an eight-pound CrossFit trainer. But he didn't. We find a humble servant wrapped in human vulnerability who is obedient to that vulnerability all the way to death, even if it meant death on a cross. You hear me? Hear me, church. Jesus is not mighty because of his capacity to overcome hardship. Woo! It hit me like a ton of bricks. He is mighty because of his willingness to go through human hardship just like we have to do. He has to go through teenagehood. He has to go through somebody wiping his tail. He has to go through sickness. He has to go through temptation. He has to go through people speaking wrong about him. He has to go through what it means to be weak and vulnerable and need of someone giving you milk. (laughs) And it finally made sense. That compassionate empathy from Jesus is the only thing that can transform the human heart. That's why he did it. That's why he did it. How does love restore what it loves? By becoming what it loves. 
Love, capital L, God. How does it restore what it loves? People, by becoming a person. How does love defeat its enemy death? How does it do it? By accepting it and dying itself. How does love show itself mightily? It accepts the weakness of being born as a helpless babe and the vulnerability of dying even on the cross. And can I say to you today, I know it's not popular, but the mightiest thing you can do is accept the vulnerability of being born and eventually dying. And when you finally do, you will notice love has mightily been with you there the whole time. He's right there with you. That's the mighty God we celebrate at Christmas. So he comes in this world as a baby. And then it says this line, and I finish. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths. I love that word swaddling. I can't wait for all these babies to be born in the next few months. I'm going to swaddle the absolute tar out of them. Y'all come on a Sunday. We'll have five Moses swaddles. I'll Moses swaddle every one of these babies. I love the word swaddle. We don't use swaddle too much. But I love how the text says it because the text says manger. You know what manger is? It doesn't mean barn. You know what manger means? Manger means feeding trough. You know what swaddling means? Are you ready? Swaddling means strips. But don't you love the Luke and Matthew because it's so much better to say, you will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. That's so much better for all the Christmas pageants all around the world than you will find the babe wrapped in strips of cloth lying in a feed trough. But strips of cloth made me think, where did they get the strips of cloth? Well, Jewish couples, when they traveled, they had strips of cloth. You know why? Every trip a Jewish couple went on, they had strips of cloth. You know why? Because it was unlawful for the Jew to touch a dead body. And many times on the road, there would be somebody beat up and killed and murdered on the road. And you know what the Jew would do? The Jew couldn't touch the body, so they would use clean strips of linen. They would pick up the body, take it to the city so that it could receive a proper burial. That was the first reason. You know the second reason why they had strips of cloth? It's because pregnant women carried strips of cloth because it was not unusual for a baby not to make it through the birthing process high, high mortality rate for babies to die or the mom to die. Now think about this. Mary knows she is going to deliver in Bethlehem. Do you know who died in Bethlehem giving childbirth? Rachel. Now Mary walks into Bethlehem with the Son of God in her womb. Rachel's tomb is still there to this day. You can go see it. In Bethlehem. So she knows she's going to Bethlehem and she's carrying the Savior of the world. And surely, look at me, mamas, surely it was in the back of her mind. This may be all I ever do for God. This might be it. I might give birth to Him and I might be done. I might not make it. I may be like Rachel and die in childbirth. So they're carrying strips of cloth. Look at me, church. Let me give you another, another word for strips. Are you ready? burial cloths you will find the babe wrapped in burial cloths how appropriate how fitting 
that the baby will be wrapped in death cloths. Jesus was born to die. And from his from his very birth. Revelation says it this way. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Romans says he was born to die for our sins. So he was wrapped from the very moment he came into this world. He was wrapped in burial cloths. He had a purpose. He knew what it was. You know what his purpose was? His purpose was to lay down his life for others. You know what my purpose is? My purpose is to lay down my life for other people. You know what your purpose is? Lay down your life for people. Give up control. And lay your life down. That other people might find Jesus. That's our purpose. And church is the only way we can experience true joy. Team, would you come? Christmas is a joyous time. It's a joyous occasion. But I've lived long enough to know that many people during Christmas, they don't, they don't experience joy. And I know this message has been really simple today, but when I was praying this week, the Lord has really gave me one big burden. That's, that's how I felt about today. And my one big, my one big burden is this. If you and I keep trying to hold on, to try to stay in control, to keep our hands on any and everything, it's the spirit of Herod, not the spirit of the Magi. And it's definitely not the spirit of Jesus. And so many of you today, maybe you're even streaming live, you feel like you always got to be in control. The scariest part of following Jesus for you is the the acquiescing, the relinquishing of control. And I I want you to hear me. There's nothing wrong with a disciplined life or what I call a principled life. But you have to give up control or you'll never experience the joy you could experience. The joy that's available. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.